Thanks for being here this morning. If you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and it's on page 977 of the Pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 3, we're working our way through the book of Ephesians this fall, we're actually going pretty quickly uh, through it, and so there's so much we could slow down on, but we are going to look at um, Ephesians chapter 3 this morning, verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Paul's coming to the halfway point of the book where he's just been sharing what we have before he gives some imperatives and challenges to the church, and he prays in Ephesians 3. Verses 14 through 21, it says this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that you being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, Lord, thanks. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the fact that you are a near God. You're not far away from us. That we have access and boldness and courage and confidence that we can come to you. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you just come right now and help us, encourage us, teach us through your word, guide us, help us to open up our hearts, and you would just change us through it. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Who was, who was praying for me? Was what a teenage, 19-year-old teenage girl who had totally abandoned her faith and abandoned her family for two and a half years. One Wednesday morning came in, had not been home for months, and that's what she was crying on the floor in the kitchen. Who was praying for me? Who was praying for me? Her dad was Jim Simbola, the pastor at Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, Choir. And Tuesday night, they always had a prayer service. And that Tuesday night, after people praying and praying and praying that Chrissy would come back, nobody, uh, he, he was done praying. He, he, could, he was tired. He was, had no more tears to cry for his daughter. Somebody slipped him a note that night and said, I think we should pray for your daughter. And so the whole group prayed. And he went home and he said, It's done. And he was shaving that morning, and he woke up. His wife said, Jim, come down here. Chrissy's here. And he went down, and there on the floor was Chrissy Cymbala crying, asking her dad to forgive her, her mom to forgive her. And she asked, who was praying for me? Who was praying for me last night? And her dad said, the church was praying for you last night. Ian Bounds says this, the more praying there is in the world, the better this world will be. The mightier the forces against evil everywhere. Prayer in one phase of its operation is a disinfectant and a preventative. It purifies the air. It destroys the contagions of evil. Prayer is no fitful, short-lived thing. 
It is no voice crying unheard and unheeded in the silence. It is a voice which goes into God's ear and lives as long as God's ear is open to holy pleas and as long as God's heart is alive to holy things. God shapes the world by prayer. Prayers are deathless. The lips that uttered them may be closed in death. The heart that felt them may have ceased to beat. But the prayers live before God, and God's heart is set on them. And prayers outlive the lives of those who uttered them. Outlive a generation, outlive an age, and outlive a world. The prayers of God's saints are the capital stock in heaven by which Christ carries on his great work upon the earth. Who is praying for me? Is a statement that the world is asking and they don't even know they're asking it. If you watch the Black Panther movie, there's a song that's being sung and it's called Who's Praying for Me? Who's praying for me is what we all are kind of asking. That, who's praying for me? Does anybody care? Who's praying for me? So my question right at the beginning is, who are you praying for? And do they know it? And then I want us just to be encouraged this morning by this passage, which is a prayer of Paul's, to know that two things for us as you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed for you. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for you. And every time you pick up the Bible, it's God speaking to you. And when you read John 17, go and read it this afternoon. It's Jesus praying for you. Jesus prayed for you. And the Apostle Paul prayed for you because he's praying this for the church, which is us, these Gentiles. And what he's done so far in this passage is he's, he's painted a picture of the church's culture, what we have in Jesus Christ, what the gospel gives us. And he, he says he's, he's shown that there is a third wave of people who are no longer separated. It's not longer Jews and Gentiles. It's the one people of God, this third wave, this third group of people, which is the church. And the church is counterculture. It, it is to be, we're going in a different direction but we live in a real, real world. And many of you experience that this week, and you feel it as you sit here this morning. And these people felt it, because Paul was in prison when he wrote this. And he says at the end, he said to them, right, be, right before he started to pray, and then he took the little excursus last week to fill with some more information, and he picks up his prayer again. The last thing he said in verse 13 was, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering, because they, they, they heard who they were in Christ, then they lived in the city of Ephesus, filled with everybody going a totally different direction. They were powerless, and Paul says that he could sense the panic, that this is who we are, this is what we, we have, and they're like, I hear that, I see the imagination, I have a different view, but I don't feel it, and I can't see it, and he's, he's sensing for them a sense of panic, and he doesn't want them to feel powerless, and so what he does is he prays for them. And he pauses, which is what prayer does for us. It's, it's a chance to pause. And in Paul's prayer, he points to what's true, and he pulls back for us and gives us some access to assess our situation, which maybe some of you do need to do this morning. God is near, he said. That was his whole argument, that we, we, we don't have a God that's far away. God is near, and God is powerful, and prayer is powerful, and we have access, boldness, and we come to God with confidence. John Bunyan said, you can do more than pray, 
after you have prayed, but you cannot do more until you have prayed. And prayer brings love and power together, which is what Paul's prayer is. And we pray, and Paul prayed, because we believe what is possible. Or what's the point of praying? We are called to pray in faith. And when we pray, and this is a public pray, prayer that Paul is giving. He's giving this, he's, he's telling, hey, this is my prayer for you. This is my public prayer for you, which is corporate. And most of the New Testament prayers are corporate. It's not us in our little closet. It's the prayer together with the church is what Paul's call is. And he says, this is my prayer for you. And, he, and it's a way of saying, I want you to trust God. And he's also teaching us how to pray. And so he says this, above all else as he prays, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. What he, what he instantly wants people to do as we pray to this church of people who, who are living in a real world with real struggles, seeing everybody else succeed. There's this little group, but they're, this, they're, they're the one who in Christ the whole earth is being filled. They don't feel it and see it. They're starting to panic a little bit. And Paul's response is to pray for them. And, he, and he, what he starts out with is this, I want you to bow your life before God. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, which is not the normal posture for a Jew to pray. If you read and look in the New Testament, mostly Jews would stand up praying with their hands up. We see they do it at the wailing wall, nonstop. The posture was to stand. But Paul didn't do that. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And he probably literally got on his knees and prayed this sense. But it's, it's also this idea of, of, of bowing. When you, when you bow before somebody, there's a, there's a sense of reverence that comes from bowing before a king, kneeling down before them. It's also it's an, ex- it's an extreme position or an extreme passion. If you really, really want something, people beg. And when they beg, they don't stand up and say, give it to me. They, they drop to their hands and knees and they beg. They have an extreme passion. This is what Paul's praying for them. He's, he's, he is, has this deep passion for them that they would get this in their life. And praying is also a defenseless when you're on your knees. It's a defenseless position to be on your knees. I'm sure we can all remember a few years ago in Egypt, all the guys dressed in orange with men standing with knives behind them, and all of them were on their knees before they got killed. Because being on your knees is absolutely defenseless. It's being submissive. And what Paul wants is for people and for us to bow your life before God, I'll never forget when the first time I met Dave Savarine, went over to his house after he showed up at church and I said, I can come over tonight. Showed up and from, for three hours, we went from Genesis to Revelation and I shared the gospel with him. We basically went through the whole Bible. He had questions after questions after questions. And finally I said, Dave, you have to submit your life to Jesus Christ, which is not a use, the word I used the first time I've talked to somebody, but that was the use, the word I used. And I'll never forget, Dave pushed back from the table, put his hands on his knees and said, I don't submit to anybody. So I folded my Bible up and said, I think we're done here. <laughs> but three months later, Dave Severine submitted his life to Jesus Christ. God wants us to bow our lives before God. It's a, it's a defenseless position of, submi- of submission, and it's, 
a chance for us to pause and get a clear perspective. If you've ever had your kids in little league, little soccer or something, when they're out, somebody gets hurt, they're all running around, they have no idea what they're doing, they're, they're living their own dream. And then somebody gets hurt, and all the coaches say, they blow the whistle, and everybody gets on their knees. Why? Because if they didn't do that, they'd still be running around thinking the ball was out there, but it pauses everybody, gives them a chance to give a perspective, to see that, hey, there's something outside of you. There's somebody else's life that's involved in this situation. This is what bowing your life before God is. He bows our knees. Paul says, I bowed my knee before the Father in whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He says, this is, I bow before the God who created everything, who's over everything, everything. He's he's over everything. That's who I'm I'm praying to. That's, That's who the God that I am praying about. In Isaiah 40, verse 26, it says, lift up your eyes on high. And see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. That's the God that we pray to as followers of Jesus Christ. We look outside, we see the stars, and he knows every one of them. He created them. He's the father of every group of people. This is who Paul was praying to, and he, and he wants people to bow, and, and it's this God who is, uses and is in control of everything. Psalm 119, 89 through 91 says, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointments, they stand this day. For all things are your servants. Everything that happened to you this week, every situation that you're dealing with, all of those things were not outside of the sovereign control of God. Everything is the servant of God. That's who Paul prayed to. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. And he wants people to bow their lives before God. That's how we are able to have this connection with God. Listen, Bowing your life before God is the most important thing you can do as part of the gospel. Some of you have sat in church maybe forever, and maybe you're a young person. I want to be very clear that this is what a Christian is. It is submitting your life before God. The gospel is taking God at his word. Listen, taking God at his word about you and about your sin. That you have decided to go your own way. You, you, you aren't good on your own. You, you can't get to God on your own. It's taking God at his word about you and your sin, and that your sin separates you from God. And there's no amount of good works, good energy, good feelings that can bridge that gap. And God says he is rightly and justly angry at our sins. And his wrath will be poured out on our sins. And that's you. But we take God at his word about our sin, but we take God at his word about the solution for that problem as well, is that he loves us so much that he sent his son, himself, to die on the cross for our sins. And Jesus is our hope and our rescue, and we trust God with your life and your leadership. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is not just adding God to a list of, of good things. 
to make you feel good or you like Jesus. Becoming a Christian is saying, I am, I'm a sinner. I have, I am, I'm separated from God without any hope whatsoever except that God gave me hope through Jesus. And by Jesus doing that, I, I bow before God and say, Jesus, you, you have my life. All of it. I need you to forgive me, and I want you to lead my life. I'm not adding you to a list of other gods that I'm holding on to. It's you alone. I've got nothing else to offer. That's the good news of the gospel. It's bowing before God. You can sit in church for years and miss the gospel. Don't miss the gospel. It's the, it's the good news of uh, bowing your head, bowing your life before God. But he wants us to bow our lives before God, and he wants us as then Christians, to be fully devoted to God, which is a continually bowing our lives before God. And this is what Paul's praying to. He's, he's praying to believers, people who've heard the gospel, had their lives changed, they've bowed their life. And he says, I want you not just, I want you to be fully devoted, fully devoted to God with your life. And the way you do that is you base your life on the promises of God. And so he prays this. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He wants you to trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. That, that, that's what's basing your life on the promises of God is, is trusting God. It's saying, I've surrendered my life to God. I'm going to trust him. Psalms 115 says it three times. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says trust in the Lord. That's what God calls us to. Satan's desire for you individually and for the church collectively, is to have both of them remain in a, just a spiritually stagnant place. He, he's fine with it. Just be stagnant. He's got all kinds of strategies to make that happen, that you can just be stagnant in your life. That's not what God wants for us. That's not Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer is that people would base their life on the promises of God so that they wouldn't lose heart. That, that's what they're struggling with. These, these people are followers of Jesus who've heard the great promises, and, they're, and they're, he doesn't want them to lose heart, but they... they, they they could if they don't base their life on the promises of God. And so he gives them some rescue. What's the resource? He says, here's the resource so this can happen for you. He says, I pray this, that according to the riches of his glory, it's the riches of God's glory that allows this. And, and the place it's supposed to take place is in the inner man. He says, I, I pray that you would be granted strength with power through his spirit, the Holy Spirit, in your inner being. All these bodies we're looking at right now, they're going to die. Hundred years from now, all new people will be in this room. We don't need strength for our physical man, even though God gives it to us. But what he's, Paul's praying for is strength for our inner man, the 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 real you that God's called us to. He wants us to be strengthened with His power and His Spirit in the inner man, and and so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So I, what does that mean? Christ to dwell in my hearts through faith. I'm already a Christian, but Paul's writing this. Two Christians. He says, this is, uh, the, the realm is in your insides, your, 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 the inner you. And what you need is to base your life on God is the resources that you, it's possible because of it, the riches of his glory. It's done in the inner man. What, what you need is a renovation. In Revelation chapter 3, there was a very famous verse that often gets quoted. It says, behold, it's a picture of Je just Jesus talking. It says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne. He's not writing that to people who 
don't know Jesus. This is, this is often used as a verse to bring people to God to, for evangelism. It's not an evangelism passage. It says in verse 14, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, I write these things. It's a statement by Jesus to the church, where Jesus is saying, I stand at the door and knock to your, your inner being. And the word that he uses is, is that I want to ha- what I want to have happen is that Christ may dwell in your heart. So the word dwell is the, the idea of just to live in the house. Paul's praying for these Christians that God, through his spirit, would give them strength, that Christ may dwell in their hearts to live in the house, to settle down and be at home. Can Jesus do that in your life? Is Jesus settled down and in your life? He's, he's at home. There's no areas of your life where you're like, you can have this much, God. I'll give you, I'll show up on Sundays this many times a year, so you have that. I'll give this much. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this. Is that the inner man of your heart? Is what Jesus is calling for to base our lives on is a renovated life where the Holy Spirit comes in and just completely renovates and, and guts the insides out and turns it around and it, where Christ's heart is our home. Is Jesus absolutely comfortable in every area of your life? Jesus was walking through your heart and life. Would there be some area he'd say, oh, please don't take me there. I, I don't want to, don't, don't, you're hold, holding on to that. Paul's praying that Jesus through his spirit, may dwell in your inner heart so that Christ may be at rest in your home. That, that takes a renovation. That takes a process. It, it takes a new love, which is what he prays next for. Here, here's the request. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength with all the saints, to know the breadth and length and height and depth of God. The only way, the only way we're going to have our hearts and lives renovated and changed where Jesus is just at rest in our homes, of our hearts, is we have this new love, a greater affection. Because all the things that you're holding on to that aren't surrendered and bowed down before God, the reason they're not surrendered and bowed down before God right now is because you love them more than you love Jesus. You might love money. You you may love Jesus, but you might love money more than Jesus. You may love your relationships more than you love Jesus. And and God says what you need is, what Paul's praying for is, that kind of faith, that's going to get shaken. What what we need is a heart and an inner life that has been renovated by the love of God, the power of a greater affection. He says, I want you to know the love of God, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of it, which really, how do you measure that? Because he doesn't even know how to measure it. He says, because that you may be, it's to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's even, I don't even know how to explain it, Paul says. It's it's more than it could even be said, but I want you to know it. I want this, you to know how much God loves you. I want you to know the breadth and length. There's the absolute vastness of God's love. How do you measure that? But it does say the breadth of God's love, which means there's no one beyond God's love. There's no no one beyond God's love. If you get shocked 
by someone's sin or your own sin and think, oh, I can't, I can't believe that that, that that person did that. You don't understand the love of God. For you, there's some level where it can't go. If you, if, I've had people tell me, hey, um, I, I might as well just keep doing what I'm doing. I'm in a deep, I'm in a pit too deep. That I'm just going to keep doing it. God, God can't love me now. It's not true. There is no end to the love of God for us. There is no length to the end of God's love for you. Which means it, it, it goes and it, you can't put a track. It won't stop. Psalm 139 talks about where shall I go from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I go to the bottom of the ocean, you are there. That's where God's love is. It's, it's everywhere. Whatever situation where you're like, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't think it can reach me this far. It can, God's love can reach you that far. He wants you to know that. He wants you to know the depth of his love. Where Jesus emptied himself. How do, how do you know the depth of God's love? The, the depth of God's love as he came in human form, to, went to the cross, and he emptied himself. In Philippians chapter 2 it says, he emptied himself and became a servant and went all the way to the cross. He died for you when you were his enemy. That's the depth of God's love. And the height of his love, is, it says in Ephesians 3, 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and, tight and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We have no idea yet how much God has for us. It's only going to increase. And the, the only way you're going to base your life on the promises of God is when you start to grasp the love of God. You say, well, I never had anybody love me like that. I had no model to show me. My, my dad didn't love me that way. My mom didn't love me that way. My friends don't love me that way. I, I don't understand this. Paul says, that's why I'm praying for you, so that you can know through the Holy Spirit's power how much God loves you, the, the depth of it, the height of it. Whatever lie in your head says to you, God can't love me anymore, or God can't, I, I've messed up, I've gone too far, there's no hope for me, those are all lies. The love of God says it can go to the depth, the length, the height. There's no place you can escape God's love, nor is there anyone who can escape God's love. Where we get so worked up sometimes about, I can't believe people did that. If you're shocked by sin, you don't understand sin. But what shouldn't shock us is what should shock us even more is the depth of God's love for sinners, which he poured out for us, and this was Paul's Christ request, and he wants us to base our life on this. And it's rich, and he says, when you know this, to know the love of Christ, it surpasses knowledge. And the reason why? Because I want you to be filled with the fullness of God. I, I want your life so filled with the fullness of God that it's overwhelmingly filled. You, you, there's no areas I don't feel comfortable with. There's no sense of insecurity in your life. When you know this, you, you are secure in Christ. And there's this fullness that comes on, and it's because of the riches of God. About 30 years ago, there's a young couple, they went down to Haiti to adopt this five-year-old girl named Addie. And Addie, they picked her up. Her mom and dad were, had died young. She lived on the streets for a number of years. She had nobody, street kid. She was, got adopted. They took her home to Arizona. The first night that they're there, she had found out she had two, now she had two teenage brothers. They all sit down to eat, and the teenage brothers just devoured the food. And Addie was sitting there all nervous and, and concerned. And, and the mom could, say, could tell something wasn't right, and she figured it, it, she, she thinks there's not enough food. 
So she took Addie by the hand, walked her into the kitchen, opened, <coughs> opened the refrigerator, and showed her all the food. She took her over to the pantry and opened up the refrigerator, uh, the pantry, and they, she took her all the food. She put the food in her hand. She said, Addie, you will never go hungry again. Because all this food, all this, no matter how much food your brothers have, we have more food. There's all the fullness in the world is available to you. You, you will never be hungry again. It's, it's all the, the riches are here for you. That's what Paul's praying for us, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that me, we would be filled with the fullness of God with such confidence that no matter what we're going through, we're going to say, you know what, I'm not going to turn back. I'm going to keep basing my life on the promises of God because it's God's riches and his fullness that come because of his love for me. And what's the response to that kind of prayer? If we really grasp that, Paul, Paul's response to that is he, he's, he's, like, he's hit the high point. And he's like, well, I don't know what else to say. So he praises God, and he just, his response to it is this doxology, this broadcast about God. He says, this is, this is what I do. I'm going to broadcast this. So now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Doxology is just this praise and adoration to God, why can he do this? Why can he pray this prayer with people who are on the bubble a little bit with, with what, what's going on in their lives? Pray this for them. Have the confidence that God's going to work it in their life. And his response is just this, I want to broadcast about God. I, I want to broadcast it because if it's his grace, it's the grace of God. That's what we all have in this room. Listen, it's the grace of God. And it's the glory of the church to do this. We're the ones that's supposed to broadcast this about God. We're the ones that are supposed to do this. Now to him who is able, because Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 says, and he put all things under his feet and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are the visible representations of what God does for us. We're the ones that demonstrate to other people, hey, this, this God's real. When you pray, he answers prayer. And the way he answers prayers, he uses us. And, he, and we love people. We show people how much we love them. And it's us. who He says in verses 2, verses 21 through 23, In him, who the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built up together in a dwelling place for God's spirit. And then first. 310 says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's through the church. And this is why Paul prays. Because we look around and we forget the culture that God has given us in Christ. We forget the grace that God has for us. We forget how much God loves us and the fullness that we have. Growing up, we used to have one set of binoculars. And if we were ever anywhere and something to see, we'd fight. I had three bro- two other brothers, and we'd fight over who got the binoculars first. And if you had the binoculars first, you would focus it in, and you'd get a good view, right? And then when you give it to your brothers, you would spin the thing at the top and totally make it unclear. That's what the enemy, our, the world, the flesh, and the devil constantly wants to do for us is for the church. This is who we are. This is what we have and what we constantly, and we look around and we say, it doesn't seem that way. 
It doesn't seem clear. Uh, the, the, this is the people that we're supposed to do this with? It doesn't seem clear. And God says, yes, but I want you to keep clearing it up. And the way you do that is by to know the love of God and the greatness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, how is it possible that this is true? How is it possible that we can know the love of God this way, that we can grow in the fullness of God this way, which takes time? It's a process, which takes time. But how, how can we know this? Because of the greatness of God. It's because it's him who's able. It, it's God's power that makes it possible. That there, it's him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Abraham learned this. God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to make from you a great nation. And Sarah, you're going to have a baby. And Sarah laughs. I don't see it, she says. I, I, I totally don't see it. My, my vision is completely blurred. And God said, why do you laugh? Nothing is impossible with God. Children of Israel, they were delivered out of Egypt, and they, they were free, and they came to the Red Sea. God said, just trust me in this. I don't see it. Their vision had been completely blurred. And God says to Moses, hey, tell the people to stand still and watch. Because the Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Because God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Daniel was in the lion's den, and he trusted God. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fire. And they said, hey, if we die, we die. But our God is able to deliver us from the fire. And he did. Because God is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. And Jeremiah who was prophet, who was just thrown in prison and nobody believed him and he prophesied this, this truth and God said, hey, hey, I want you to go buy some land from your cousin. Buy the land because I'm going to give it to you. And it didn't look like it was ever going to happen, that, 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 that they would be, cap, be captured and they even have the, uh, the ability to possess it. But in Jeremiah 32, he buys the land and then he walks out and he says, ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your art outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is impossible. God is able. Nothing is impossible for you. So what that should do for us is give us this boldness in our prayer. To pray boldly for God. Nothing's impossible. It's, it's far more abundantly than all that you can ask or think. For some of you, to hear that is like seeing a brick wall. You just can't see it. You, you just, you, you're stunned by that idea. How can that be? How could it be that God could break through in ways that I never understood? It's possible. Because God does more than we ever ask or think. I've loved getting to know John and Ida. And John and Ida have been married for over 50 years and John himself will tell you he wasn't that good of a guy. And for 50 years, Ida prayed for John that she would come to know Jesus Christ. That he would come to know Jesus Christ. And she prayed, and she prayed, and she prayed. And four years ago, in his 80s, he decided that he was tired of his old life, and he needed Jesus, and he's sitting right there, and he's worshiping God. God is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. But it's, 
a slow move of God sometimes. It's, it's a process. But we trust in God. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, Sabbath his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble, not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And the word is Jesus. And because of his cross, we can know this. You can know the love of God. So if this morning you have not bowed fully to Jesus Christ and aren't trusting him completely with your life, and you sense it, Surrender. And if there's parts of your life that's not based fully on Jesus Christ and you know it as a Christian, bow them, surrender them back over to God and ask him to do the work. Let him be in control of the renovation. And if he's done it for you, then be bold and broadcast the goodness of God to a who can love them? That's what the church is called for. They, they look at people, they look at the church and say, I, I don't get it. But they're different. They gather, they pray, they sing together. Their, their, their lives are different. They're not the same. What is it about them? What is it, what is it about? What's up, what, is, what it is, is the grace of God in us and the work of God in us through his spirit and the Father continually pouring his love on us. And the more we know that, and to the degree that you know that, will you be able to praise God and to pray boldly that God would do a work in you and in the world through the church for his glory.